Good morning, Grace. Thank you, Reuben, for reading that. I love to hear Reuben speak. I think God speaks in King James English sometimes. Have you ever noticed in all the Jesus films that Jesus has a British accent? Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes I begin to wonder if that's the heavenly language. But we are in our series on Elijah, a man just like us. And we, we look at this prophet we've learned about in the last few weeks, a prophet of God who appears on the scene during what is known as the divided kingdom. When Israel and Judah, or Israel as a nation, divided, and the northern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Israel, while the southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah. It was a civil split, almost north and south. And the nation, especially the northern kingdom, turned their backs on God. And God had prophesied, had set forth within His Word, as the book of Deuteronomy, we can see this prophecy mentioned initially there, and then Solomon mentions it, and uh, his dedication of the temple, that when his people, when God's people would turn from his face, when he would turn from his ways, God would withhold rain from the land in order to get their attention so he could turn his people back to himself. And his, his mouthpiece, his vessel, he raises up the prophet Elijah to proclaim this famine that is coming upon the land. And he confronts this wicked king Ahab who is ruling over the northern kingdom of Israel, along with his equally wicked queen, Jezebel, that there's not going to be any rain in the land. And as we've learned, God took him immediately away to this brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan River, where he is fed as the famine begins. God commands the ravens to fly and bring him food twice daily, and he would drink from the brook. But as the famine increased, the water decreased, and the brook dried up. And then next we hear, as we just read, that God commands him to go to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now, as we look at this passage, it is important that we understand the details and what's going on. And I hope today to be more of a walking commentary through this passage as we see how God is forging the faith of this prophet. Sometimes we think these individuals, uh, these prophets that we read about in Scripture, have these big giant halos around their head and life was easy. But we see, according to the book of James, Elijah was a guy like us, which means that he was prey to the same doubts, the same discouragement, the same depression, the same things with which we struggle. But yet God was forging in him faith to believe him at his word. And some for us today, that's hard for us. We like what we can see. I was at lunch with a friend of mine this past week, and he was lamenting, he was frustrated about a, a friend of his that he used to go to church with who has now left the faith. And he said, I have decided not to believe any longer. He said, I would rather focus my attention on what I can see. I'm going to build my house. I'm going to build my bank account. I'm going to build up all these earthly things because I can see these things. But even then, he's placing his faith in something earthly that's going to fade away. So we understand that faith is part and parcel to Christianity, to our belief and trust in Christ. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because we must have faith. If we were to approach Him, we must believe that He exists and He answers those who come to Him, as it says in the book of Hebrews. So today what I'd like us to do is take a front row seat in this prophet's life as we see God forging faith as he's taking him step by step and strengthening his faith. Last week we saw that he was in God's boot camp where he's learning to take authority, to listen to God's voice and then take him at his word and respond in kind. And today this is advanced training. I mean, God is taking him out of his comfort zone even further to forge his faith. And that's what he does with us. He takes us to places where we wouldn't otherwise go to grow our faith, to strengthen us. It's the difference between Atrophy and hypertrophy. Atrophy is when you don't use your muscles and they decrease and they become smaller. Hypertrophy is when you continue to use them and your body responds and grows bigger. Your muscles respond in kind to how they're being used. We need to put our faith muscles to use because God wants to grow our faith. I'm reminded of a story. I was speaking with a, a good friend of mine last night who is uh, from Romania. And he grew up under communism. And the stories that he tells are absolutely phenomenal on how God was working in the persecuted church in Romania. 
And he tells the story as he was traveling with his father. His father was a lay leader in the church, and he would travel on weekends to many different churches in the area. He was one of the few leaders that had actual training in the scriptures to these very small villages and these underground churches of maybe 15 or 20 believers in a location. But the, the secret police were trying to find out where these churches were. They knew that he was a, a leader in the church, but they were trying to find out where they were so that they could extinguish them. So he would get ready to go on a Sunday, and he would take his family with him, and he would go to singing in different churches outside of the village. And as they were getting in their car, and they were driving to the outposts of the little village, the authorities would stop him, and they'd say, where are you going? And he would say, I don't know. Because he didn't. He said, I didn't know. And he wasn't lying, because he didn't know. He said, I, I, I don't know where I'm going today. And they would just kind of scoff and push him through. And then it would be after he would pass through the, the, the post God would direct him to where he would go. And he would feel God prompting him to go to a certain village. And he would show up at this village. And, and the, he knew where the underground church was. And he would come in and bring his family. And they would sing. And the people would say, we were praying for you to come to us today. And, and I was talking with my friend about this. He said, Travis, I saw this firsthand. People were getting saved. Because they were operating by faith. See, it's easy for us today. We operate what we can see. We have jobs. We have paychecks. We have all of these things, our ducks in a row. And in some ways, we don't need faith. But you look at those in the persecuted church and what they're undergoing and the trials that they're enduring, they have nothing but faith. So I believe, though, that God is working in our midst, in our nation, and in our church to forge our faith and increase our faith. That we might take greater steps of obedience for Him. Because as the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So today, I hope that we can look at the prophet Elijah's life and see what it means to walk by faith. So I would encourage you to follow along with me as we go through this passage, as we skip through these verses, and we examine some of these details. And we're going to see what forging our faith involves. Now let's look. Let's jump right into our text. We're at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now we're going to see here that he, he had already obeyed the word of the Lord, what God had said, and he had gone to the brook Cherith, and now God directs him again. God takes him on a fresh path of obedience. See, that's the first step in having our faith forged. Is taking a, God takes us on a fresh path of obedience. He takes us to where we've never gone before, where we have nothing else to depend on. He will strip everything else away from us that we can focus exclusively on Him. And it's challenging to us. It's uncomfortable to us because we don't know where it's coming from. We don't like it. We say we, we have faith, but when everything's stripped away, we start to get very uncomfortable. And God's saying, do you believe my word and what I have said in my word? Do you believe what I am directing you to do? So it's a, it's a fresh path of obedience for Elijah. To, and he has, it involves, first of all, a command. This fresh path of obedience involves a command. There are actually three commands that are given here. Arise, go, dwell, get up, leave, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, not only was he to respond and obey, this fresh path of obedience, we know, obeying the command of God, he was to get up, go, and do it, to dwell there. The question I have for us is this, are we obedient to the Lord's commands as he's revealed within his word? I'm astonished with how many Christians say that they believe and trust in his word and his word alone, and yet they live their life in a complete contradictory manner. I've seen students that say, I believe the word of the God, the word of the Lord. And then they're constantly reading their horoscope. That is not the word of the Lord. God does not approve of that. That is completely contrary to God's word. I see people post this all the time coming up on Facebook, my, my daily horoscope. That is demonic. That's not from the word of God. We are to trust in the word of the Lord and respond to his commands and sometimes these commands are uncomfortable for us. We don't have the, the ability to subjectively choose what we want to obey and what we don't want to obey. Say, I'm going to take this and not that. We are placing ourselves as judges over God when we do that. We are to obey the commands of God as revealed within the Word of God to respond to the Word of the Lord. Now remember, during Elijah's time, he only had the first several books of the Bible. We have the completed canon. 
the New Testament, the, we respond to the will of God was revealed within the Word of God. As God directs us to respond, to make the necessary changes in our life. And you know what? That's going to be hard to do sometimes. It's hard to be obedient to the command of God in your workplace when you know that it means not lying. Some are doing that. Some feel that they have to lie just to save a few bucks. Obey the word of the Lord. It might be uncomfortable. Some of you might need to make confession of sin to ask for forgiveness, to be reconciled not only to God, but to your brother or sister. God says, forgive one another as in Christ God forgave you. You can come up with the litanies of excuses, but the fact is God forgave you for the insurmountable sin that you have done. Are you obeying the command of God to take that step of faith just like Elijah did? Now, it not only involved a command, this new path of obedience, but involved a challenge. It involved a challenge. Let's look at the text again. Verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now, this is a detail that we can overlook. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. What is Zarephath? And and why is it important? Well, Zarephath is a city in the country of Sidon. Now, that may just mean nothing to most of us, but if we were to do a little study, we'd find out that Ahab, who is king, his wife is from what country? She's a Sidonian. And her father is... King Ethbaal, who was a murderous tyrant who killed his brothers to get to the throne. And his name literally means, I'm a friend with Baal, this false fertility, Canaanite fertility God. And she becomes a zealous missionary for Baal herself. So God is telling him, Elijah, I want you to go into the headquarters of Baalism. I mean, that's a challenge to your faith. I don't know about you, but that would be a challenge to me. Not only did he have to go to Zarephath, which meant that he had to travel 100 miles going up the Mediterranean coast into what is now Lebanon, but as he was going along, he would have encountered many different things. Number one, did you know that his life was being threatened? After he had spoken to Ahab, I'm sure Ahab just laughed him off at first. But when the the river started to dry up, Ahab issues a proclamation, go get Elijah. We read in 1 Kings chapter 18 that he had sent emissaries to the different countries looking for him. I mean, he's America's most wanted. He is on the FBI list. And he is sending his secret agents to go out and find this guy. Imagine someone try, us trying to find Osama bin Laden. He's enemy number one to America. And to Ahab in the kingdom of Israel, in their idolatrous state, Elijah was enemy number one. He was the reason, in their minds, for this famine. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of Elijah... It was because of Israel's sin. Israel had turned from God. Elijah was simply God's spokesperson, the man for the hour, the vessel that God was going to use to speak to this idolatrous people to turn their hearts back to himself. But it would have been a challenge not just to travel up, to go through this land, to know what people were looking for him, to know that his life I mean, was in danger. Not only that, but as he's traveling along, he is seeing the effect of Israel's sin firsthand. I mean, you know that he's encountering people that are dying. I mean, a famine, you couldn't escape. You couldn't just go down to Jewel and get what you wanted to do. Go to Aldi or Trader Joe's or go to Woodman's. You couldn't do that. There, there just wasn't that there. This was an agrarian society. The rain was essential for them to maintain life. I mean, war, people could run from or you could be a slave of, but famine was inescapable. And it was a slow, painful, excruciating death, not only as you died, but as watched your children die. Can you imagine that? Hold on to your infant child, if you have one, or even your grandchild, and knowing that all they need is water. And Elijah sees that. It would have been a challenge to his faith as he's going along, and he's seeing that firsthand, knowing it was God was speaking through him to Ahab, to withhold rain. So it had to have been a challenge. And then to go into the headquarters of Baalism, I mean, it's out of the frying pan into the fryer. He is jumping right in. And, he is, and then he's to go to a widow. See, a widow of Zarephath. A widow of Zarephath. Now, most of us just kind of skip over these details, the widow of Zarephath, but it was so essential to understand what did it mean to be a widow in the ancient world? I remember my father died when I was quite a young boy, and my mother had three children, 15, 12, and 4, to raise. 
And it was hard for her. And she had to work full time. And my grandparents had to help out. And, and it was difficult for us. But in the ancient world, it was worse. Much worse. I mean, widows had nothing. They were the poorest of the poor. That's why in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, religion that God deems as pure and faultless as this, to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. Or think about, think about the book of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi is from Bethlehem. She moves to Moab with her husband and her two sons. And then her husband dies. Her two sons grow up, they get married, and then they die. So it's three widows living together. And she says, it's terrible here. I've got to go back to my homeland. So she gets ready to go back, and she sends her daughter-in-laws away, but Ruth won't leave her. She goes, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Nothing but death will separate me from you. And she goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And they, how are they going to work? What kind of job qualification is a widow going to have in a grand society that is dominated by men? I mean, what land does she own? So she was forced, what was Ruth forced to do? She was forced to go and glean from the fields. And she had to travel behind the workers, getting the edges of the fields. She was at the mercy of the owner of the field, which was Boaz. And even when she returns home to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi's not working. Naomi didn't have an opportunity. There wasn't a job for her to do. She was completely desolate. So here we have him saying, go to the widow in Zarephath. In essence, he is saying to him, go to the poorest of the poor, and I have commanded her to feed you there. And not only is she a widow, but she's a pagan widow. Because she says, look at the text, as the Lord, she says in verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, not as the Lord my God lives, or our God lives, as the Lord your God lives. So she's not even, uh, she's not even a believer. And this is a tremendous step of faith for Elijah. I can imagine him going, wait a minute, I was all good with the ravens. How is this woman possibly going to take care of my needs? And not only that, he's a prophet. A prophet of God. He graduated from prophet seminary. I mean, he was an established guy. He had spoken to the king and he is going to the lowest of the low. And the lowest of the low, God says, is going to take care of him. So it had to have been a tremendous challenge to his faith. And that's what, when God takes us on this fresh path of obedience, he challenges us to think in ways that we aren't used to thinking and puts us in situations and, and, and that we don't know how to react and how to respond necessarily. And God says, rely on me. Rely on me. And that's not easy. It's not comfortable. But once we do so and we see the hand of God work, and this is, I'm assuming, what happened in Elijah's life, there was great comfort that came to him. See, when we obey the word of the Lord, and we see His hand work, it brings great encouragement and comfort to our soul. I imagine as He was talking to her, and remember what He said to her, He said, go and bring me a vessel of a little water to drink, and bring me a, a, a morsel of bread so that I, may eat. I might, might eat. And she says, hey, we're just gathering sticks. We're going to cook our last meal and we're going to die. We're starving. We're starving. But to see how, and we, we're going to get into this a little bit more, is how he says to her, no, no, go take care of me. And this, the oil won't be exhausted. That jar won't be exhausted. That flour won't be exhausted either. And to see it happen in front of his face, face had to be such a great encouragement, a great comfort to his soul, to be able to see all of these things happening because of the word of the Lord. Now, in forging our faith, we also have to see, and we must remember, God's faithful a promise Faithful promises amidst new obstacles. God's faithful promise amidst new obstacles. Now here, let's look at the text in verse 10 through 12. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, God promised him that the widow would take care of his needs. The question is, and the text doesn't say, how did he know which widow it was? How did he know that, how to identify this widow? To go into this pagan town, we don't know what he saw, but he says that he saw a widow there. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. Which is pretty amazing because what's going on in the land? A famine. So what is one of the most precious commodities that's there? Water. So he says to her, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, so she's, she's inclined. She's responding to the word of the Lord. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So there were a great deal of obstacles that needed to be come, overcome. And not only the forging of faith of Elijah, but forging the faith of the woman of Zarephath, this widow at Zarephath. And these obstacles that are, are there, that come and, and they both come into contact with, first of all, would cause doubt in the widow. Doubt in the widow. I mean, think about it. This guy shows up that she's never seen before. She recognizes in some way that he's Jewish because she says, as the Lord your God lives. She recognizes this. But she's, and he says to her, bring a little water and bring me a food. And she's probably saying to herself, and, and imagine going, first of all, I'm a widow. I have nothing. How am I going to do this? I, doubt would have undoubtedly risen in her mind. Doubt arises in my mind. I think to myself, why would this guy ask for this woman who had nothing for something? But it was because God had told him to go do it. He was forging his faith to see if he would o- obey to what he had commanded him to do. And this doubt arose in her mind. Because she says, we're going to die. We're starving. Do you realize what you're asking? You want me to take the little bit of food that we're going to have for our last meal and give it to yourself. So there was doubt in her mind. And God wasn't, though, just forging His faith, but her faith. And it took faith for her to trust this demand from the prophet. That's the next thing we see here. There's a demand from the prophet. He demanded drink and food, even though she was going to make her last meal for her son. So there's doubt. She's encountering his demand. And then a decision has to be made. She has to make a decision. What does she do? What would you do? What would you do in that situation? Would you feed this guy that just showed up at your door? The cupboard's bare. Refrigerator's empty. There's nothing in the freezer. You've got no money. There's no food stamps. I mean, there's nothing like this in, our econ- in their economy. You're going to die. What are you going to do? God's forging faith. He says, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? A decision had to be made. Does she make him food? Does she do what he says? Does she take care of Elijah for her own son? Does she follow his direction even though it means that she dies quicker? She does what he says. And then she sees God's miraculous provision. And we can see that God's fabulous provision was anything but ordinary. His fabulous provision was anything but ordinary. Elijah said in verse 13, Do not fear Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Take care of me first. (laughs) Seems almost selfish. But God is directing him. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now this provision was a reminder of three things. Number one, of God's grace. Of God's grace. Now how do, you, how do we look at that? The key, one of the keys to interpreting this text is actually the book of Luke. Chapter 4. I would encourage you to turn with me there to understand the reality of what's going on. In Luke chapter 4, verse 24. Now, I want to set the stage of this for a little bit. Jesus is just starting His public ministry. He's at the synagogue. And He stands up to read from the prophet Isaiah. And in the beginning of it, He says, and it's pretty amazing here, in, in verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he, said, he began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as I was sharing this in my small group, this is pretty fascinating because he actually breaks off mid-sentence. 
at the end of this reading. If you were to look in the prophet Isaiah, the next statement says, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Because that wasn't fulfilled yet. That would be at the second coming of Christ. And that's why he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Can you imagine the astonishment of the people when they heard this? The Jews sitting there going, wait a minute, it's fulfilled? What, 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 what do you mean it's been fulfilled? Jesus said, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, and this is where our, our Elijah comes in. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, Elijah's successor. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now look what, how they respond. This helps us understand how to interpret Elijah and what's going on with him at the widow of Zarephath. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, what would make them so angry that they would pick up rocks? Look at verse 29. And they rose, rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so, so they could throw him down the cliff. So he wasn't picking up rocks. But they were going to throw him down the cliff. They were going to kill him. For what he just said about Elijah and the widow of Zarephath and Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. But passing through their midst, he went away. So what's the the key element here? What are we looking at? What can we see? Well, is that God's plan has always been to reach the nations. That's what's going on here. God loves the Gentiles. Did you know that we've been grafted in to God's economy of salvation according to Romans chapter 11? We were far off and been brought near. God expanded His plan. His plan from the very beginning was to reach the nations. And the Jews couldn't take that. They said, we're the privileged people. So when He says, no, 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 they wasn't sent to any of the widows in Israel, but to a widow of, of Zarephath and Sidon, this pagan woman, God wants to reach her with the truth of who He is. And we can see that without, in the entirety of the Old Testament. Rahab was a Canaanite, and yet she has been brought in and a recipient of God's salvation. During the time of Joshua, she was a prostitute. And yet God uses her and brings her into saving faith that she becomes a Hall of Famer in Hebrews chapter 11 and part of the lineage of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Which is quite fascinating. And even Ruth, she was a Moabitess outside of God's people. And remember, and most of us, we, we skip over this. Even in the Exodus, it wasn't just the Israelites that came out. There were some Egyptians that came out as well. See, God's plan, even when he told Abraham and his promise, he said, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it was an act of God's grace to this widow of Zarephath. Not just just some act that we could read about and be amazed, but it was an act of God's grace. God didn't have to do anything for her. He could have let her die. But he didn't. It was an act of his grace unescapable, amazing grace. But it's also a reminder of God's greatness. God's greatness. Now, if we were to look at the passage when it refers to Naaman the Syrian, just as we read about Naaman the Syrian, he shows up to a prophet, Elisha, and he has leprosy. And Elisha doesn't even come to the door. Naaman shows up. He's a great esteemed general. I mean, he would have been uh, part of the, you know, the... uh, What's the guys in the, the Pentagon officials? He'd been one of these individuals. Great general, four or five star in time of war, whatever. He's an amazing guy. And he shows up, and Elisha doesn't even show, go to the door. He says, go dip yourself in the Jordan seven times, and you will be cleansed. And he is hot mad. He's like, at least this guy could have come out and prayed to me. And the rivers of Damascus, where I'm from, they're so much better than the junky rivers of Israel. And one of his attendants says to him, would you have done anything the prophet said? Just go and do it. And he does, and it says that he comes out with skin like a baby. And he's amazed. And he comes back to Elisha, and he says, I'd like to take some dirt back with me to my homeland. And he loads up this cart of dirt. Because, see, it was considered, and he didn't understand the full ramifications, but each deity was considered to be a localized deity. Only good on their lands. 
That's why we read about it in Kings where there was a battle between Israel and I can't remember if the Syrians or what, and they, they get defeated and the, the people say, hey, we can fight Israel in the plains. We got beat before because their God is the God of the hills. Our God is the God of the plains. We'll take them. See, they had this understanding that they were localized deities. Even Baal was a localized deity. So God is showing his greatness by going into a pagan land and, and helping a pagan woman and supplying her needs. God's not a localized deity. He's the God of heaven and the God of earth. He's not just the God of, of us in our church, but he is the God creator God. Uh, and that's how I love at a Passover Seder, if you ever hear someone pray, said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe. Great title. He's the king of the universe. He's not localized. He's not limited. He can do whatever he wants to do because he alone is God. So it shows God's grace. It shows God's greatness. And it's also a reminder to give God glory. To give God glory. God was simply showing himself to be God. And when he does so, we're to respond by giving God glory. Because when we joyously reflect, God, reflect back to God the radiance of His worth, what He means to us by giving Him glory, by thanking Him, by praising Him, God is communicating His presence to us in a very real and profound way. That's why the Psalms are so full with praise the Lord our God. Praise Him with the snare. Praise Him with the cymbals. Praise the Lord with the dance. Praise Him. Praise Him. This is what drove C.S. Lewis nuts when he read the Psalms. He said that that God seemed to be a vain woman in a new dress looking for compliments. And he started to realize, he said, why is he saying praise me so much? Like, praise me, praise me, praise me. And he said, I realize that it's by us praising him that God communicates himself to us. So God, in essence, is, is seeking our joy in him. By when we praise Him, when, we, when Pastor Andrew stands up here and we have the praise team and we are lifting our voices and we see these words prompt on the screen and we lift our hearts and worship Him in spirit and in truth, God begins to communicate His presence to us. We're not just singing words. We are praising Almighty God. We are worshiping Him. God wants our worship. As Jesus says in John chapter 4, the Father seeks those to worship Him, seeks worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship is the key element and the missing jewel within many of our churches. It's not just an act of rote singing. It's the act where we, God communicates Himself to us in a very profound manner. I mean, what does Satan want? What does he say to Jesus? I'll give you everything if you just bow down and worship me. He wants your worship. He wants your worship. So we can see here this provision is a reminder of God's grace, His greatness, and His glory. But that's not all. We can now look and see some of these faith-forging principles that we must own as Christ followers. Some faith-forging principles that we're going to see here. And I hope to kind of bring us down and look at this. God's leading is often surprising. Don't analyze it. Now what I mean by that is not that you don't look to the Word, to the, you don't compare what you are feeling prompted to with Scripture. You always compare with Scripture. If it's not in accordance with Scripture, then don't do it. I mean, I hear people say, God wanted me to date this woman who is not a believer. No, he didn't. I can say with full authority, that's not true. That is not true. Because that is not according to the word of the Lord. What I mean by that, don't analyze it, is this. If you know what God is directing you to do through his word, do it. Don't sit around twiddling your thumbs all day and try to read various commentaries on it all the time and look it up on the internet. God tells you to do it. Respond. Act. See, Elijah arose, got up, and dwelt. He didn't spend time going, wow, I wonder where this is at in the Pentateuch. He did it. He did it. Now remember, we are to examine with Scripture. We are to seek counsel at times, but we know that directly it says it in the Word of God that we need to obey it. Don't analyze it. And the second part is this. God's promises hinge on action. Get going. Get going. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is in the book of Ezra, where it says, Ezra sought his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. It wasn't just to seek to study it. It was to do what it said. Just do it. Just do it. Do what the word of the Lord says. So get going. God's called you to be doing something, to take a step of faith, to start a ministry, to talk to someone about who He is, 
to confront sin, do it. If he's calling you to lead your family, if he's calling you to submit, do it. If he's calling you to give your tithes and your offerings, do it. If he's calling you to be obedient in your workplace, to speak out against evil, to take a stand for truth, even if it might mean your job, do it. Because God will honor you. God will honor you. Will you have the comfort knowing that you obeyed the word of the Lord and what it said to do? You will have the comfort of the word of the Lord knowing that you obeyed. So we can, God's, we can see that God's promises hinge on action. Get going. God isn't concerned with you. Reflect His affection for the nations. We saw there that He, he cares about the widow of Zarephath. Widow of Zarephath. He has a concern for the nations, do we? I mean, sometimes we'd rather be in church with people that look just like us. You know, they said churches are still divided racially, unfortunately. I mean, I, I think of the story of uh, Philip Yancey tells in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, as he was a boy and he was bringing up his mission offering at church. It was Mission Sunday. And he brings up all this money and people are saying, what a great kid. You're a great kid. God's going to use you. And we want to reach the nations. And everybody is saying, amen, brother. Amen, brother. He goes, it was my same church that had watchers outside keeping people that were black out. That's wrong. He admits that. He repents of that. The racism that was found even within his church back then. See, God is to reach the nations with the gospel, which means reaching people that don't look like us, don't sound like us. He wants to reach everybody with the gospel. doesn't matter what their background is. doesn't matter what tribe or tongue they are. God wants to reach the nations for the gospel. He wants our, to, our heart to beat for the nations. We can also see that God takes the little we have and adds to it. God takes the little he had. She, the widow had flour and a jar of oil. And he kept adding to it. And we have to be careful in understanding this. The Word of Faith movement uses this as a means to just demand money from people. That's not what the Scripture is saying. God is saying here, I want to take the little that you have and make it much. I'm going to add to it. You entrust it to me, and I'm going to take care of it. The widows might, remember that when Jesus tells the story in the temple, the widow came in and put two coins in, she put everything she had, and he said, everybody else gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty because she gave everything she had, and she'll be blessed. Are we giving everything? Are we ready to give everything to the Lord and do what he has called us to do? We give the Lord everything we have, the little we have, and he adds to it. And last point, God's provisions are just enough. Appreciate them. He wasn't giving her any more, anything superfluous. We always want a little bit more to make us feel comfortable. Do you ever notice that? We feel good if I had just a little bit more. People say, would you like a salary increase? Yes. How much? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. How much? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. God says, this is enough. Be content with your wages. It's a hard principle to understand and to appropriate, I think, for all of us. But we need to appreciate what God has for us. As we're thinking of forging faith, and I've gone through my last point, I'd like to tell the story that many of you already know that's been an impact on my life. I know Pastor Andrew has said the same. We've talked a little bit about Brother Yoon. Uh, read a book about his life called The Heavenly Man. And we want, if you want to talk about Read about faith. Read about this man. He's alive today. Uh, he was in the underground church in China. Pastor Andrew actually referred to him. It was a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, I would encourage you to get his biography. It will challenge you. It's not for the faint of heart because this man was tortured. I mean, brutally tortured. And if you read it, it they give very grisly details of the torture that he went through. And there were eyewitnesses to the event. Other Christian leaders that witnessed uh, what I'm about to describe to you happen. Uh, and this, again, is in the persecuted church. I'm not saying that this is normative. Please don't get me wrong. But I'd like to tell you the story of this man who is directed by faith. Brother Yoon in China, his life, as I mentioned, chronicled in the heavenly man. And Brother Yoon had been arrested because he had attended a meeting of leaders aimed to achieve greater unity of the Christian groups in China. Something interpreted by spies of this, or the secret police as a political move which was opposed to national stability. So the Chinese government, 
I mean, it's not really secure in itself. So they arrested him. He was in this arrest with both photographed and videoed. And trying his luck as usual, Yoon had jumped from a window in trying to escape, but this time injured his feet. Police then kicked and trod on Yoon, fracturing his legs. And once inside the jail, uh, in the course of innumerable interrogations and beatings, his broken legs get beaten, leaving him screaming in agony. And the result was his legs turned black and presumably would have gone gangrene, needing eventual amputation. His judge had, in fact, said to Yoon when he admitted he would try to preach the gospel again if he escaped and was given the chance, he said, you delinquent, I'm going to break your legs permanently so you'll never escape again. Yoon got known in the jail as the crazy cripple who was regularly carried everywhere by three prisoners designated to the job. His pain was so intense that to sleep at all, he had to rest with his legs up against the wall. His situation and long-term prospects were so ghastly that finally he felt let down by God. This is just one example of what he went through. I mean, I can't tell you the humiliation that he went through. And if you want to read the book, I would very encourage you to do that. But two months later, on May 5th, 1997, a Christian prisoner in an adjoining cell gave Yoon the message God intended him to escape, which at the time seemed absurd. Short of crawling out to be shot in the back, it could, uh, what it could mean given Yoon's personal condition and his in jail, rather than encouraged by the message, it only brought out all of Yoon's gathering depression and triggered an intense argument with God based on passages of Jeremiah, which he was reading, though he knew whole tracts of the Bible by heart, Chinese style. When he reached a certain passage of warning and promise to Jeremiah, Yoon suddenly had an intense vision. Such seemed to feature wildly in Chinese culture and Christianity, especially more globally. Again, everything has to be compared with Scripture. Uh, he saw his wife, who had also been arrested out of prison making medicines. He asked her about her release. Her only reply was to ask, why not open the iron door? The vision ended there, and Yoon heard the voice of God say, this is the hour of your salvation. Acting on the instant obedience, almost blindedly, Yoon did the only thing he could, which was knock on the wall, using the signal to be taken to the toilet, which he would have to be carried outside the cell. Brother Zhu appeared at his cell to carry him, but promptly commanded him before returning to his cell for, uh, for toothbrush and bathroom regalia for himself. He says, you must escape now. This is hardly feasible when crippled Yoon would need to pass down through three floors with three iron gates, each regularly watched by two armed guards, then cross the prison yard with the further guarded gate to the outside world, plus the time was eight in the morning when there was a lot of activity in the prison. When a prisoner left a cell for anything, a gate to the corridor was locked from the outside, so there was no chance of exit. A sort of dream sequence now takes over, which if the book has so far periodically, the heavenly man chronicles this entire thing made the reader nauseous with its tortures, might now leave one feeling a bit dizzy. No longer thinking how and why he is even moving, Yoon propels himself toward the first gate, and because someone is entering it, accompanied by one of the two guards of the gate, he manages to slip through unobserved. Remember, his legs had turned black. Because someone is entering it, accompanied by one of the two guards of the gate, he manages to slip through unobserved, because a telephone suddenly rings temporarily, distracting the other guard of the gate who runs off. Moving down to the next floor, Yoon picks up a broom from the wall, which makes him look like he's on a, job, on a working job. The next floor has an iron gate that is occasionally left open because the guard would always be on duty uh, day and night beside it. But the voice of the Holy Spirit now tells Yoon the God of Peter is his God and he must go through. The guard is st- staring straight at Yoon, but somehow dazed with it, so that Yoon passes straight through the second gate, after which no other guards, either on the descent or out into the yard, manage to see him as he carries his broom. Or if they do, they presumably decide he must be a worker. Yoon is still human and realistic enough to fear he must surely... Uh, be shot in the back as he crosses the open yard in full view of the prison compound towards the entrance, Still, yet still nobody sees or stops him. He is walking through the gate of this prison. When he reaches the main gates, they are mysteriously open. Just as he exits a yellow taxi, stops at the gates of the prison, and he automatically gets in giving the address of a Christian family in the city he knows who will need to, who will need to receive him and pay for the fare that he doesn't have. When he arrives at their home, there is great excitement, but minimal shock. As the family had been told in a vision, while at prayer the day before that Yoon would escape, calling on them is the first thing. Knowing this, they had already arranged a secret hiding place for him. Now the story continues. Brother Yoon's bold escape from the, the prison greatly embarrassed the Chinese authorities, and they launched a huge manhunt to find him. You can look all this stuff up, by the way. 
Yun's ministry in China was finished because few people dared to house him or help him in any way for fear that they would suffer severe consequences if discovered by the authorities. The Lord spoke to Yun, telling him, Leave China. Do not delay. Your witness for me in China is complete. The people will not accept your ministry among them any longer, for they are too frightened. The next day, a friend called to confirm the word that God had prepared a new ministry for him in fulfillment of the word he had been given many years earlier as a young man. Go west and south and preach the gospel. But Yun had a problem with leaving the country because he had no passport. Shortly afterward, another Christian brother who was a businessman felt prompted to give Yoon his own passport. So he gets this passport, and he says, when we looked at the passport, we noticed another problem. The picture of this brother looked absolutely nothing like me. He was balding and wore glasses. I had shaggy hair and completely different features. This brother was so much older than me. Believing the Lord had told me to preach his gospel among the nations of the world, a time was set for me to leave China, and a ticket was purchased from Beijing to Frankfurt with Air China on the 28th of September, 1997. Early that morning, after had many had spent the night in prayer for his protection, Yun received a word through Proverbs 10.19. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. The Lord spoke to Yun. When you enter the customs hall at the airport, say only what I instruct you to say. Nothing else. I waited in line for my documents to be checked. Finally, I reached the front of the line. I handed over the passport and boarding pass. The officer looked at the picture and then at me and started to laugh. Ha! This photo isn't you! It looks nothing like you at all. Then he held up the passport for the officers in the other booths to see. They too laughed contemptuously. The line of passengers grew longer behind you as the situation delayed the flow. It's obvious this passport doesn't belong to you, but even if I let you go, there's no way you'll get permission to enter Germany. They'll place you on the next flight back. Incredibly, he passed the the stamp the passport and said, Go! There was no human reason for the officer to do this. All I can say is that the Lord was in control of the situation, influencing the officer to do his will. About 10 hours later, my plane touched, touched down in Frankfurt, Germany, and I proceeded to the immigration desk. When I got to the front of the line, a German officer looked at my passport. Immediately, he raised his eyebrows, and a stern look came across his face. He spoke to me, but I couldn't understand, so I just stood there and smiled. He motioned for me to stand to the side. Three other officers came to inspect my passport. They knew it wasn't mine. They shook their heads and said in threatening voices, No, no! At that moment, a scripture came into my mind. The righteous are as bold as a lion, Proverbs 28.1. With the fire of God in my heart, I stared at the main officer with a look of judgment in my eyes. The officer looked at me, stamped my passport, handed it back, and motioned for me to go. It was only by the grace of God. He goes, I was in Germany. As I sat in a vehicle taking me to a pastor's house, the Holy Spirit powerfully spoke these words to my heart. In the same way that I brought you out of prison and out of China, I will bring 100,000 of my children out of China to be my witnesses throughout Asia. Two years later, at a meeting in Finland, a Christian businessman heard Yoon's story. The Finnish brother said, I work for a certain telecommunications security company. Several years ago, we won the contract to install state-of-the-art voice recognition software at various border points around China, China, including the Beijing airport. Using hidden microphones, these programs allowed officials to quickly match the voice of suspicious passengers against a computerized database containing the voice patterns of wanted criminals. You can be certain your voice was in that database because so many recordings have been made of your preaching. He said, if you had opened your mouth that day in Beijing airport and said anything, you would have been arrested on the spot. But God had told him, don't say anything until I tell you what to say. From Proverbs chapter 28. I thank the Lord for his wisdom and mercy when he told me, when you enter the customs hall at the airport, say only what I instruct you to say. He hadn't prompted me to say anything to the officials, so I didn't say a word. He says, it always pays to obey the Lord. Now, that's an amazing story. I'm sure that's outside of the realm. I'm not saying that we, go, we don't go seeking for visions or anything like that. Let me be clear. We go to the word of the Lord. Now, God was speaking to his servant. I mean, he didn't have a Bible with him. He's being persecuted and beaten on a daily basis. Can God speak in those ways? Sure. This is life-based testimony, and those within the underground church have been testified too. That's not what we go seek for. We go look to the word of the Lord and the Bible alone. And he did. He studied the scriptures and memorized large swaths of scripture, passages, books of it. God is still using him. He's spoken at our own other campus just a few years ago. I would encourage you to get the biography and read for yourself. What I, what, I, what I want to take away from this is this, is God was forging his faith, and he uses individuals like that to help forge our faith to trust God at his word, to do great things for his name. And it might seem like minor things in your home. It might be just taking care of your children. It might be just doing your job well. But God will direct you by his spirit, through his word, 
to speak to your friends and family about who He is. And God will do things that we can't imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, God is more than able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. So, what do we take away from this? What about us? Well, how is God forging our faith? How is He forging your faith? What is He calling you to do to trust Him at His Word, according to the Word of the Lord? What has God shown you within His Word that the Holy Spirit is just putting it upon you that you know that you need to make some changes? Either you need to confess a sin, you need to repent. Maybe you need to go and seek restitution. You need to make restitution for something that you have done. Maybe you need to speak to your colleagues, your family. Maybe you need to give at a greater capacity. What is God directing you to? Maybe you need to expand your vision on the world to reach the nations. Who does God want to reach through you? Is God asking you to place Himself as the first priority in in your life, just as He did the widows? It is only when we obey the Lord and do what He has called us to do that we are able to see that His plan and purpose are bigger than ours. And it is only when we place Him first in our hearts that we are able to see His hand at work. May God give us the faith to see His hand at work in the world and to take the steps of radical obedience so that He might receive glory and we might receive joy in Him. How is God forging your faith? What greater steps is He asking you to take on behalf of Christ? Christ gave His life for you. He died on the cross for you. The same God of Elijah, the God direct Elijah, is the same God that gives Himself by sending His Son to die on the cross for your sins that you might have redemption in Him by placing your faith in Him. And that same God who is able to provide for a widow of Zarephath to forge the faith of Elijah and that widow is able to direct and order the events of your life for His glory and your joy. Have you trusted in Him? Have you given your life to Him? Have you repented of your sins and invited Him into your life? Know this, there is salvation given, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved except through Jesus Christ. It is only by believing in Him that we have eternal life. And we can have that same faith forged just as He did with Elijah and that widow. And God will work within you to do great things for His name, His glory, and your joy as you obey and follow Him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are grateful that You you are the living God. Just as the widow of Zarephath says, as your God lives, you are the living God. You are not just a God of one nation or a God of a particular land, but you are the God of the universe. That you have made the mountains, the valleys, the seas, the stars, the planets, the solar system. Lord, everything you have made, you have made worlds without end. And you are the living God. The God who calls us to yourself. The God who has given us His Word, Your Word, that we might know how to live and direct our lives in spirit and in truth, following You. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who does not yet know You, that they might repent of their sins, Lord, because as it stands, they are under Your wrath. Lord, I tremble to think about how difficult and how horrible Your wrath is. Lord, it is in proportion to Your great love, because we know that He who comes to You, You will by no means cast out. You accept all who come to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we are all, and we have all been prodigals at one time or another, and we come to you admitting our guilt, admitting our sin, asking you to to renew us, to revive us again, that we might continually be able to behold who you are and what you've done in and through Christ for us. And Lord, empower us to take greater steps of faith as we obey your word, as we seek to honor you above all things. Lord, honor these acts of faith. And Lord, help us to continually go to your word again and again that we might receive your direction, that we might see your will and act according to your word. We thank you and praise you for what you're going to do in individuals' lives. Lord, I pray you give people the strength and the courage to follow through, that they might take those necessary steps of faith today, that it may not rest, that they might do what needs to be done according to your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.